Today on Night Rule, we will be speaking with Ben Burgess on a wide array of topics. We start off uh, talking a lot about some TV out there, our various thoughts on various series, uh, before transitioning into discussing uh, philosophy and logic and politics a little bit more. Um, it was an extremely fun discussion, so I hope you all enjoy it. Um, today's outro is a track by one of my all-time favorite instrumentalists, uh, Takanaka Masayoshi. The name of that song is Thunderstorm. And But first, we'll be hearing a song by the same artist uh, titled Finger Dancing. And after about 45 seconds of that, we'll transition right into the conversation with Ben. So with no further ado, please... Get nestled in your favorite nestle area. Uh, put on your most comfortable, brightly colored indoor socks. Kill the lights, sit back, and uh, enjoy the show. I call Skynet because they're always <laughs> fucking with us. Uh, it's like really shitty for the first like 10, 15 seconds for some reason for me now. So just out of curiosity, why, why, are you, why are you using Skype instead of like uh, Zoom or something? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's pick your poison for me. Ultimately, like uh, we we invested so much in Skynet, you know, over the years in like the 90s, you know, after the first after Terminator 2 came out. Uh -huh. and me and my friend, this is, you know, we had Skynet on our computers. It was like, it was already there. It was installed. We had each other out of his contacts. It was just easier to use Skype at first. And then of course we have used Zoom here and there, the new, the new kid on the block that everyone's talking about that's taking everything over. But like Zoom seems even more evil than Skynet. Like I haven't seen the last Terminator movie. I don't know if they talk about Zoom in that, uh -huh. how they're taking over the world or not, but I have, I'm not fully up to date on the timeline. It's uh -huh. very complicated. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but I could way. I could have used Zoom. Do you think I should just use Zoom because it's got greater social capital? Oh well, not that it has greater social capital. I I just my possibly inaccurate impression is that it might be slightly less flaky. But you know, I mean, whatever. I don't you know. Um, I don't know that it actually makes that much of a difference. Mm, yeah, um, I've definitely used it for a few times. So um, we'll see if we change sides. I mean, the one the one biggest thing we've been worried about, and I'm recycling a joke from the hockey podcast now, is that. You know, if we stop using Skynet, like you don't want to escalate things with Skynet. You don't want to pull the plug too soon because you know sure. that can go wrong. You know? Sure, sure, so, sure. sure. <laughs> just, I, just, uh, work, just working on we're working on de-escalating. You know, a conscious decoupling with our Skynet. Nuclear war. Fair enough. I actually just watched the um, uh, as I was eating breakfast. I just watched the uh, first episode of uh, Raised by Wolves on HBO. Have you seen that? No, no. Okay, well, that's a uh, that's also, check that out. that's also a AI thing, so that's why I was thinking about it. Oh, nice. Two androids are tasked with raising human children on a mysterious virgin planet. Okay, that sounds like interesting stuff. Can't be can't be worse than Westworld season three. I'll tell you that. Um, so yeah. those of you, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was just saying, I, I watched the, um, I have watched the first, like, season and a half of Westworld. I've actually got very mixed feelings about that show. In fact, if you want, we could talk about that. But uh, Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I mean, first yeah. season, to me, uh, was pretty solid. I think, you know, I, I don't know if it went off the rails in season two, but, like, the, ra- <laughs> the rails by the end of season two were certainly in the, in the rearview mirror, in my estimation. So they must have they gone off the rails at some point. And then season three is like beyond like you're you're definitely you made the right choice getting off before the end of season two ben burgess by the way everyone you'll you'll recognize him by his voice but we have the the wonderful the superlative uh ben burgess he's a philosophy professor and an author and a writer um you know him from his writings of jacobin uh, his work on I don't know. I, I know you mostly from Michael Brooks show and David Feldman show, as well as your new podcast uh, slash YouTube show, Give Them an Argument. Welcome, uh, Ben, to the Night Rule podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's I'm still getting used to saying that this is episode two. So still plenty of time to um, to give up and 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 just like, you know, uh, throw throw in the towel for me, which, which is really like my main move. Like I've moved, you know, it's a false start. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Um, yeah, honestly, let's just jump right into Westworld first. Let's, let's okay. just have a nice soft, crunchy landing to start the morning here. Sure. Give me so, so when I first started watching Westworld, I loved it because, um, uh, well, okay, for one, you know, for one thing, uh, I am like a huge cheesy classic rock fan. And the way that they would incorporate stuff like having, you know, the robots, uh, the um, not the robots, but the uh, the player piano, like um, Radiohead and stuff, yeah, 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 like like all the, you know, and, and the Rolling Stones and all that, like 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 that was, you know, I'm a huge sucker for stuff like that. Um, yeah, painted painted black, I believe it was. Yeah, painted about black, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, one of the more memorable scenes in uh, season one. Uh, and all of the the sort of mysterious, you know, enigmatic, you know, mysterious stuff where you know Anthony Hopkins would, you know, give uh, you know would would give ominous speeches and uh, uh, you know the like you know ambiguity about whether the sexy robots you know were uh, were conscious and all that stuff like like I was just eating it all up and then but then uh, by the time the season was ending. And the they did the exact plot twist that they were kind of telegraphing, like from like a couple episodes in. And I was like, oh god, I hope they don't do that. That'd be you know. And then they did it. And mm. then um, and then also all of the stuff about the uh, consciousness, the bicameral mind, and all of that. Um, I I think there is I think there is fiction that like integrates that in a way that works. But my problem with the way they did in Westworld was that they put it right front and center. So you actually had to think about it. And uh, it didn't really make that much sense. And it was also like, this is not an uncommon frustration for me when it comes to science fiction. That's all about, um, you know, robots or AI becoming conscious. So like, it was very unclear to me what they even meant by that, you know, because right. uh, clearly the robots were having experiences this whole, the, the whole time, like in season, like episode one or two. There was like, oh, they have dreams. It's like, oh, no, we don't give them dreams, you know, but we give them the concept of dreams so they understand what's happening to them, you know, when they have some framework to put what's happening to them when we do the system checks in the middle of the night. Yeah. It's like, okay, so they have experiences. What are you talking about, right? Like, uh, it yeah. was just, you know, it didn't, 
it didn't make sense. And then the fact that Anthony, I'm just going to spoil the shit out of Westworld, by the well, way. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Everybody, everybody avert your ears. But also just like, yeah, if you haven't watched season one of Westworld by now. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And if you, so, don't, and if you don't know, it go, it's it's more, it's not worth watching at this point as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then like the, the plot, like the overall plot arc, like seemed kind of nonsensical. Like why was it that the Anthony Hopkins character was, was stopping the, uh, oh, it's because the, mystery. Yeah. It's because mystery. Yeah. Yeah. The robots how, earlier. How, yeah. And then he was like the exact thing that he'd stopped where his partner was doing decades earlier. Now he's, you know, like, like why? Yeah. Right. Like, like, and, and then you kind of realize that none of those ominous speeches from all season long really fit together into anything that made sense. <laughs> you know, like, it no, it's just... a J it's a JJ Abramoff production. Basically, yeah. you know, it's like a, it's like kind of cobbled together through without a real like through line and without like a real kind of the thing is though, I will say, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want people to think I, I kind of misspoke before. I think season one is actually really worth watching because especially the first like two thirds is like some of the best science fiction we've seen it's just that they 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 just fuck it up past that point and then after that it just completely de devolves into complete nonsense none yeah. of the characters motivations make any sense by season three they're fighting each other with samurai swords you're left scratching your head and like wondering how you how you made the the multitude of life mistakes that led you to this point yeah and, I mean, uh, I mean, but season one i mean the acting alone i mean i love jeffrey wright i love yeah. anthony hopkins i love evan rachel wood ed harris you know it's a kill it's a murderer's row of actors totally <laughs> killing it in season one the, the acting is good there's tons of good lines i mean obviously there's a reason i was watching in the first place like you know i like battlestar galactica i like the sarah connor chronicles clearly i have a soft <laughs> spot for the sort of, for uh, the moral ambiguity about sexy robots subgenre of science fiction, but sure, uh, sure, sure. But, who doesn't? Uh, who doesn't? I mean, come on. Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, and uh, and and there were a lot of like the atmosphere was great, right? Like, I mean, that's the totally. biggest. Yeah, uh, the oh, uh, who else? Tessa Thompson. She was great in it too. She's great in everything. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Like, so, uh, but, so but like, like yeah. yeah, the atmosphere was great. The music was great. The dialogue was great. It's just that like the plot made so little sense that like it yeah. started to bother me by the end of the season. But then I have to say, I started season two. I was like, oh, I like it again uh, because uh, the way that uh, well, first of all, that you had to think a lot about the plot less because it was just this like very straightforward like robot uprising thing, and it's kind of hard to screw that up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, and then also, I think that the sort of stuff about consciousness didn't work as well for me, but like the robot free will stuff they were playing with early in season two, I thought was uh, was a lot of fun. Like I loved there's a uh, there's a scene uh, when um, one of the main you know robot characters is uh, uh, is overseeing a bunch of uh, some robots uh, uh, like stringing up some tourists and killing them. Right. And, and they have uh, one of the, the lines throughout the first season uh, was, you know, anything the robots are programmed to not notice because it would screw up, you know, the, uh, yeah. their sense doesn't, of reality. Doesn't look like, doesn't look any, it doesn't look like anything to me is what they, is what they always say. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so like in that scene, one of the tourists, you know, it's like begging for their life and they say, Oh, can't you tell that I'm sorry? Can't you see that I'm sorry? And she says, it doesn't look like anything to me and turns around. It's like, okay, that's, that's fun. You know, like I like that. But, um, 
But then, like, as it the season dragged on, I did stop watching, and I think that, and I'm not sure why that is, because there are things that I liked. Like, I liked that little that little Black Mirror episode subplot that they did mm-hmm. with, like, the founder of the park, you know, and, and try to sure. keep him alive. Um, yeah, I uh, no, I kind of got off the train at that station, too. But I, I, it's interesting because I had the same experience of season two. And I feel like with season three, I had it to a lesser extent. It's like it kind of baited me back into it for a little bit before I, the, the, the normal dejection and self-loathing set in midway. <laughs> you know? Yeah, fair enough. Um, like season two, by the end, I remember just being like, ah, but I definitely liked it to start. I was definitely on board again at the start of season two. Yeah, I think the reason I stopped watching somewhere in like late season two, uh, and who knows, maybe I'll pick it up again and finish the season at some point. Yeah, don't, don't. You got, you got, you got some important stuff to do. Uh, but, um, but like I've also like it's also probably telling that I did stop and that like, you know, and since stopping, I've like watched like you know, all of Queen's Gambit and like I, I watched Russian Doll again, you know, from from the last year, and so it's like clearly. Uh, you know, clearly, like I, I, I don't actually want to watch it that much, you know, compared to other TV. But uh, you ever but read, I, um, you ever read like Chekhov or like any style fiction that way, like in that, in that, in that, in that ilk? Uh, just a very little bit. I actually started. Um, this is, I think this is gonna, I think this is like an objectively funny sentence, but I started reading Chekhov because Cornell West told me to on the Joe Rogan show. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. That's the best reason to. That's the best reason I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? Do you think? Do you think anyone else out there has a better reason to start reading Chekhov than that shit? Because 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 West is so like his oh, yeah. like he's so compelling no matter what he's talking about. Uh, like uh, like I you know like I used to joke with the you know uh, late friend Michael Brooks after um, after uh, there was a there was a uh, speech where um, uh, where West was introducing Bernie Sanders, where he was talking about Bernie Sanders at a um, at a, like a panel event, and you know referred to him as this magnificent vanilla brother Bernie Sanders, <laughs> and, and you know just joking with Michael, it's like man, you know I'll, I'll have lived my life well if I could just once have Cornell West refer to me as you know that magnificent vanilla brother Ben Burgess. Totally, <laughs> but, totally, uh, totally. But you know, but when he was on Rogan, right, uh, West. Um, you know, like they were talking about stand-up comedy for a while, and you know, that he uh, somehow he gets from there to watch Chekhov. You know, and it's like Joe, have you read the short stories of Anton Chekhov? Oh man, he's he's the he's great. He's very he's extremely modern. Like he's well held of his time. A really interesting guy. Like he was a country doctor who used to like give away free medical treatment to like the poor farmers. Basically, he was like this like quasi saint. Um, because there's this there's this Netflix show that I feel is really Chekhovian in its themes. Like, uh, have you heard the term Chekhovian desire? Uh, no, it, what does that mean? It, it could have something to do with the nuclear missiles or vessels or something. Uh, no, it has to do with like it's like unrequited it's like unrequited love that's like completely hopeless. I think mainly, you know, it's oh, like yeah. it's like when when the Duke loves the the Countess, but like he knows he'll never have her or whatever. Yeah. There's, this Jap- there's this Japanese show called Midnight Diner about like a, a late night restaurant that there's like this super cool like chef that comes in. He'll make anything people want. He doesn't have a menu. The people just order whatever they want. As long as he has the ingredients, he'll make it. And then um, they all have these like sad, like a, phew, the emotional payload. Like I feel like so much of the stuff that I'm watching that's made in the West is like not extremely like it doesn't really have an emotional payload the way. Yeah. Some stuff where it like actually deals with like real like because it's it's so much of what I'm watching generally has kind of a snide 
uh, snarkiness to it uh, that that has kind of like there's this 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 sardonic kind of take on life in general. Even even in like an intense drama like say The Americans, it's a really intense show, but there's still whims there's still whimsy in it, you know. Whereas for sure, yeah. Yeah, but in uh, a show like a Midnight Diner, it's like when when people are going through like problems, like you feel those problems acutely, and it's like you need to like. <laughs> go get a blanket after watching it sometimes but it's so good i highly yeah, recommend fair, it fair enough yeah the uh the americans uh like um yeah actually it's you know one of the very few tv shows i've got my wife to watch with me and uh we watched like uh god i want to say like three seasons or something like I, there are like a hundred seasons of the americans uh no, i, I might exaggerated slightly yeah. but you know whatever <laughs> like it feels like it feels like if it goes on for a very long time well the cold war was a long struggle ben what do you what do you want from these people you know like yeah, we're, lucky, yeah. we're lucky it's not we're lucky it wasn't network tv it would have been like it would have really been we've gone on forever 23 episodes a year yeah fair enough uh, you should you should finish it because uh, i think it ends really strong it has the final episode has like probably my all-time favorite like scene in like any television series although the rest of it is much is kind of like more of a uh, anticlimactic kind of uh, subtle denouement. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Uh, like I don't I don't love it, but I like it. Uh, like I think that, um, you know, it's. I mean, I think it's like fairly. Uh, like I think it's like fairly compelling TV. Uh, I think it's interesting that it exists at all. Uh, well, that's I, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, 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 would, I, would argue, I would argue that is like a huge part of it for sure. Yeah, like like I suspect that it was probably made in the only time it could have been made because it was uh, just long enough after the fall of the Soviet Union that even with you know them being extremely morally ambiguous antiheroes that you could still have a TV show like a mainstream American TV show that was about KGB agents and they were quasi sympathetic like I, I you know you you couldn't have had that in the 90s right but also I think you probably couldn't have it now. Because because uh, I think that this kind of like neo Cold War rivalry with Russia has gotten to the point where I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. I hope I am. But I think that the um, I think that the window might have closed on that. Um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's more likely like I, I, I agree. Hmm, it's a really interesting perspective. And I think you're, you could be right. But I think it could also just be that um, in in the kind of armor of like any kind of supposed, supposed like moral stance of any kind on the part of like West, like American culture, like say American, like entertainment culture, ultimately just like this, this piece of like pretty decent writing and drama just, just got pushed through. And they're like, well, this, this seems pretty good. And they were like, yeah, but like, it's about like KGB, like agents and like, they're sympathetic. Like they're the main characters. We're rooting for them. And they're like, yeah, well, like whatever, like we got nothing else. Like we got shit. Let's just, let's make this. And like I feel like ultimately that's why it got made because it was just like, yeah. but it is pretty shocking. You're watching it and you're thinking to yourself like like North American viewers, yeah. I mean, because for me as like a secret Bolshevik, it's like it's like a little bit of like you know it's, it it speaks to me on a, on that level. But I feel yeah, like yeah. it wouldn't speak to anyone else on that level really ultimately in the mainstream audience. But it was quite a successful show, and I think it just comes down to it being well done enough that people are into it even though like the political aff affiliations are kind of like probably like over most people's heads or like something they wouldn't even want to think about too closely to them. It's just kind of like a quote unquote, a spy show, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's, it was made because of the sort of unusual 
politics, although, um, uh, well, I know I mentioned a minute ago that I just finished watching the, uh, the Queen's Gambit, which might actually, although it's also made for, it's also a Netflix original, so it's even more of a niche audience, but, um, but which might actually falsify what I just said, because like that show has got some like weirdly Soviet friendly, um, like, uh, you know, mess like messaging to really, that's uh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, so, well, I mean, I, I that's probably, have... that's, a, I'm going to say, I'm going to assume that's more accidental. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's it's not. They were uh, they were a chess superpower. Let's be honest, weren't they? Yeah, they were a chess superpower, but it it, it is interesting that uh, the show, you know, and and I, and I will, I think I could say this carefully, Dad, because unlike Westworld or you know whatever, like I am actually, um, you know, I actually don't want to spoil Queen's Gambit because it's like seven episodes long and it just came out and you know people might very well uh, just still watch that, but I guess, but I, I will say, right. It's, it's about, you know, will, you, will you, will you tell me if she turns one of her little pawns into a, what is it? A bishop? Or no, queen? <laughs> into a queen at the other end. Tell me, I need to know. <laughs> uh, at the, uh, but you know, it's about high level competitive chess. Everybody knows that. Right. And there's of course, a lot of that's being played, you know, through Russians. And there are several points where the main character is encouraged by various actors, uh, including, um, like a, well, it's implied that he might actually be a CIA agent, but supposedly a state department person who's like accompanying her to play in Russia. And, uh, and also by this like Christian group that offers to, uh, to pay the bills, you know, for the trip, uh, you know, if like that, there are various, uh, there are various, uh, forces in the show that encourage her to like, sort of make like cold war propaganda talking points and she and the show al always seem to sort of roll their eyes at that and granted you that's not a super political thing because it's like it's almost like a sort of uh super nerdy version of i just want to grill you know i just want to play chess uh but uh but but it is still it is still interesting and might be going against what i'm saying about the uh the americans that that you know that that couldn't get um that that couldn't get made now I guess I, I I will say maybe uh, if the Americans couldn't be make, get made now, maybe it wouldn't so much be because of the Cold War politics that I was talking about as much as just the fact that it seems to me that uh, American pop culture in general has gotten a little bit less interested in the last few years in stories uh, about like bad but interesting people sympathetic somewhat sympathetically being portrayed doing bad things uh yeah that's an interesting point um yeah they talked about that i think on chapo recently about they called it like the louis model of uh of yeah of, exactly like, storytelling where it's like oh i'm a horror look at look at what a horrible person i am but like you're still cheering for me i think i don't know i think like even in the americans and I, it's a show that i really really love but i, I don't I, I don't know they do a pretty good job of, of like, even, even though they're doing spy stuff. So, so obviously like spies are doing much more boring things day to day in their spy lives or their <laughs> lives as agents than, than the things they're doing in like a drama TV show. But I thought they, they struck a pretty decent note of realism, but um, I mean, you yeah. could probably make the show again. Cause I, I actually think generationally, like I grew up, we're probably fairly close in age, although you've accomplished you accomplished something in your life up to this point, right? Like at least one thing, you got that on me. Um, but I like the cold. I think I think our generation, yeah. the Cold War, the ending. It's like it's yeah, still very much like. What's up? No, I was just saying like the Cold War generationally now. Like 
Uh, you think you think of something like like a, like films like like big like superhero movies set in the 80s or whatever, right? You have Wonder Woman or whatever X Men movie that I didn't bother watching. Um, it's like the 80s now, including and 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 that would include the Cold War to a certain extent, or at least like that portion of the Cold War depicted in the show. It's like not the real Cold War. It's like it's beyond a character of a character. It's like uh, it's like Cold War land, you know? Like, it's like it's like a theme park version of the Cold War. Yeah, so, although although you can do it that yeah. Yeah, although honestly, um, I, w- I will say um, that I actually wish that we would do a you know that we had gone a little bit further in the direction of that interest in Cold War land a little bit or you know a little bit earlier just in this really specific sense that the first one of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies, um, you know Casino Royale, I thought was you know like I thought it was a good you know, it was a good movie. It was interesting. You know, they were like doing something different with the franchise than any of the previous James Bond movies were. So I was, I was, you know, I was there for it. Right. Like the having like the version of Bond who would. Oh, it's respond, great. Yeah. Casino Royale is great. Yeah. Who would respond to shake it or stirred with, does it look like I give a damn? Like that's, you know, like that, you know, that's interesting. Right. They actually wanted it to be. And the fact that unlike, unlike every previous James Bond movie, uh, they were actually trying to follow the plot of the book that shared its name. Uh, so that was all interesting. Uh, also featuring was... uh, Jeffrey Wright and uh, featuring a really great song on the soundtrack right. by Chris, Chris, the late Chris Cornell. Yeah, I actually, I actually movie. met. Uh, fun fact: I actually met Jeffrey Wright once for like a second. Uh, he um, he was uh, while I was standing in line to early vote in uh, in in Florida wow. in, the, in the 2008 election. He and uh, and uh, Cynthia Nixon actually were. Uh, were there for the Obama campaign, like, you know, encouraging people to stand in line. But um, were you were you there to uh, observe them with like tremendous visible hostility and intimidate them to keep them from voting and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's okay, right. I was there as a, sure. GO, yeah. as a GOP challenger, uh, as I am every four years. Uh, yeah. But um, but yeah. So, like, I think it was great in many ways. Uh, I think that the so the but the thing that bug me about it which which could have been solved by just going further in the direction that the movie was already going uh was that the plot of casino royale doesn't actually make any sense when you switch the bad guys from the soviet union to al-qaeda right you know and 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 i just thought well like this is such a solvable problem why not just make it a historical movie and and I I don't understand why they didn't just do that. Like people would have been into it. Like clearly people would have been into it. This movie came out at like the high point of like the popularity of like Mad Men and shit like that. Mm-hmm. You know, of, of course people would have liked it if they just set it in the 1950s or 60s. You know, whenever it was set. Yeah, that uh, would be a that would be a departure for the series as well. That would have been a really good idea. You know, that movie also have featured the fantastic Mads Mikkelsen, who is a one who's a fantastic actor. I'm a huge fan of him. Anyways, continue. Yeah, yeah, and then and then of course the rest of those movies, like it fell oh, apart. They've gotten slowly worse and worse. Yeah. Well, well it wasn't even slowly because the very next one was Quantum of Solace, which was like unwatchable. Um, that was that was that was made during the writer's strike, though. I don't. I think literally they weren't allowed to write it. I think they just had to improvise every scene. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Every, so every, fair, every set piece. Fair enough. They get a mulligan on the uh, on Quantum of Solace, but. Um, but it was also weird because it's like, okay, so you're going to do the first Daniel Craig movie and it's going to be the first Bond novel and you're actually going to try, despite the weird setting change, you're going to try to stick fairly closely to the plot of the original. And so as somebody who read a bunch of those books, I was thinking, oh, great. 
Like they're just like, they'll just keep doing that. Right. And it's like, no, right. Like after that, like they just, the rest of those movies uh, were just a sort of weird incoherent mashup of, of like what the, what Casino Royale was trying to be with what the old fun James Bond movies were. And they didn't really succeed in being either one. That's true. That's true. They did try and kind of mash together like the Brosnan era with the Daniel Craig era. And also, I mean, honestly, the biggest problem I feel like with those movies is is it's just Daniel Craig just got less and less interested visibly with each one where to the point where he's just like, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard not to lose interest yourself. Did you ever hear, I wanted to ask you this, did you hear the story about how the, the writer, the, the creator of the yeah. Americans got the idea for the show? Oh, no, I didn't, no. So he he actually like had, was applying for some kind of I don't know if it was some kind of office job or something at like the FBI or the CIA, and I guess those agencies have had such a history of like various writers trying to join their ranks just for research and for story ideas and stuff that they've added a question to the questionnaire when they're hiring say, are you doing this because you're writing some fucking novel or some bullshit because we don't want you if that's the case and, and when and when they read him when they read him that question he thought to himself. Oh, that's a really good idea. Wow, like, and he's like, no. But then he like thought to himself, okay, so like, yeah, I'll, I'll use this to like write a show, write an idea for something. He's, <laughs> and I think, I think what we should do actually, because we need to inspire more young writers out there, I think we should add a similarly worded question to questionnaires across, you know, various institutions. You know, if you're applying at a grocery store, we could inspire the next great American novel very yeah, easily. For, yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, are are you? Yes, yeah, certainly post office. You know, it's like are you just trying to do the Bukowski thing and write a novel about the post office. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which. Um, uh, okay. I, I think. By the way, my my little brother uh, is uh, is somebody who works in you know the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, and uh, he, um, like. Uh, like right now, I mean, it's a temp job, you know, but it's just for a season. But like right now, he's doing like uh, art direction for uh, Robot Chicken. But he, oh, uh, cool. yeah, yeah, uh, it's the first thing he's ever that's worked like for. Meaningf- that's, that's meaningful art direction. Like art direction for, you know, How I Met Your Mother is a little different than art yeah, direction yeah, for yeah. Robot Chicken, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, for, for sure. Uh, and, um, but, uh, but when he was just getting out of college, you know, he was like, a, he had a bunch of, well, I guess like PA kind of, you know, like assistant jobs and, you know, things kind of working up from there, uh, including on uh, movie sets. And uh, one of, uh, and in one of the first one of those, um, he uh, he was working with um, that, you know, Pierce Brosnan was one of the actors in the movie, you know, he wasn't directly working for him. And, uh, and I, I guess I'll, uh, you know, not get him in trouble by telling any of the other stories about Brosnan, but, uh, but I, I think, oh I think it's, I think it's okay to just say, just tell this one, which is that, uh, apparently, uh, you know, when he's kind of, uh, you know, worked up or upset, you know, to, uh, to calm himself down, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's been observed, uh, uh, humming the James Bond theme song. Well, that's, uh, that's not, no, that's, a, that's a Welsh thing. That's the Welsh national anthem. Actually, oh, okay. but it's the same thing they used it it's well, they, that's what inspired the james bond theme come mistake come mistake okay. yeah All right. fair enough yeah. <laughs> um the real the actual welsh lyrics are really really very violent and there's a lot of bloody imagery in there too so they, they would they would yeah. yeah it's not well this is a pg podcast though so i can't go into that i, I like the brosnan ones too it's funny actually because like the gold golden eye was great you know yeah. you had she had sheen bean sean bean whatever his name is 
Yeah. We had uh, Judy Dench, right? Oh, yeah. That was her first one, wasn't it? And then that whole that whole franchise slowly declined, which is kind of like the trajectory of these franchises ultimately. Um, no, that's 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 right. Like it declined in a different way because I think the um, like I think the Brosnan trajectory was um, and you know whatever. I mean, I'm sure it's one of these things that's like everything, you know, everything does. Like the only reason the Sean Connery you know Bond movies didn't is because he didn't make that many of them, you know, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, but otherwise, there probably would have been some kind of decline there. It's like I, I always think that if you know John Bonham, uh, if uh, if Keith Richards had had died as early as John Bonham did, then you know the um, you know the Rolling Stones discography would have, you know, have a little bit more of a sheen to it because you know they would you know like and similarly if if Bonham had lasted as long as Richards has, you know people would be arguing about whether they really started to decline and during you know when they made Zeppelin 11 or Zeppelin 12, but yeah. Next episode, uh, we're going to be reading selected passages from *The Wasteland* by T.S. Eliot, because um, all everything decays, love fades, we're all going to yeah. die. We're all going to die, everybody. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough. Uh, I wanted to ask you, actually, we're still talking about shows. So you, on on your fantastic uh, new show, *Give Them an Argument*, uh, you do. Uh, is it a, is it a Patreon only thing, and you unlock the first *Sopranos* commentary, or is that just like a? Uh, so. The first one we 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 were just you know we just you know we're excited about it and we wanted to just put it up right away for you know the unwashed masses. But uh, in the starting with the next one, uh, which is going to record next week, it's probably going to initially be for patrons and then unlocked like after you know a week or two. You know we're not going to like you know uh, fairly you know before the end of the month for sure. Um, so uh, so yeah, it's going to be. Uh, this is actually um, uh, this is actually an idea that uh, that uh, Michael and I had, uh, you know, um, in uh, June. Right, of course. Yeah, huge fan of the show, Michael. Yeah. Morris. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, I, I don't know if he'd already had it, you know, but I mean, like he was. Uh, there was another podcast that I was uh, that I was co-hosting back then, uh, and and I and I was texting him about coming on there, and I sort of said something jokey about um, about how it'd be funny if uh, if in, if with no explanation we just talked about the Sopranos for the first half hour, you know, and, and uh, you know before totally. we talking about politics, and uh, he was like, hey, we can do more than that, and then he laid out this whole idea for me. Um, that uh, of of doing a monthly uh, Sopranos uh, you know recap episode of uh, of TMBS uh, and um, like I said I don't know if that's an idea he'd had before or maybe he'd already talked to Nando about that I know Nando Vila who um, uh, is was one of his co-hosts on uh, Woke Bros uh, you know because I know he was going to bring him into that too but uh, but in any case obviously yeah. he didn't get a chance to. Uh, to do that, but the idea has always stuck with me, and I decide, and I. Um, yeah, I'm know. glad you guys are doing it. Like, cause it really, it was really fun. I really enjoyed that that content a lot. Cause like, you need, it's such a great show too, you know, and it holds up so well. And I think people are rewatching it like crazy right now, um, in lockdown. So, I think we're all we're all primed for it. I'm really glad you guys are doing it. But you're doing if you do one a month, what, what you were joking like you'll finish when like, 2035 or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cause uh, so yeah, so it's it's uh, it's me, uh, Nando Vila, uh, who um, who is among other things the uh, the host of the um, uh, 
uh, the co-host with Anna Kasparian of the weekend show on, on Jacobin. And actually, oddly enough, he also does a uh, Entourage uh, rewatch podcast, which I've been on. Uh, and um, and uh, and Wozni Lambre, Big Woz, uh, who was the other yeah. co-host of uh, Woke Bros. Woke Bros, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's and, great. They're both great. And uh, Mike Racine, uh, who uh, is... Uh, who's the, uh, who's a comedian and he's the host, uh, he's, you know, we were joking in the first episode, he's our token Italian, uh, for the Sopranos, uh, so the Prince Sopranos podcast. And he's the, uh, and he's the host of a podcast called the sit down, uh, which is, you know, I mean, it's comedy and whatever, but it's partially about organized crime. And so, yeah, we're going to do uh, one, uh, one recap, uh, Sopranos recap episode, recounting one, uh, you know, one episode of the show, once a month. So as you say, you know, probably like 2035 or something by the time we're done, especially if we have to, you know, as will inevitably happen, things will come up and we'll have to miss a couple months. But, uh, mm. uh, but, but yeah, uh, the first one was a lot of, uh, was a lot of fun and, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, you know, I, I've been, I've watched the, uh, you know, I watched the show, uh, when it was first on, um, I, I actually, like I had, there was the whole thing where I'd, I'd, um, uh, I'd go over to my one friend who had HBO and we'd watch it, you know, and me and my other friend would go over and watch it there. Ah, uh, the nineties. And, and he'd take, he'd make a VHS of it and uh, use the VHS to show other people during the week, you know? So, uh, so I'd, I'd watch, yeah. watch each of those episodes twice a week. And, um, but I haven't really, uh, you know, since then, um, uh, like there was a, I don't know, like mostly since then it's just like every once in a while a friend will be over and you know on a certain kind of evening you just pop in and you know old soprano the sopranos episode usually where you know usually paulie christopher get lost in the woods parents, uh, yeah yeah exactly uh and uh but like i hadn't really gone other than like one time with my little brother when we went back and you know I, I know I rewatched it at least once after it was already on completely and one time me and my brother watched like the first season uh, but, um, the, but in any case we haven't, um, you know, it's, 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 it had been years since I'd gone back and like rewatched the whole thing. Uh, you know, Michael had actually gotten me like rewatching it, uh, from the beginning in, um, you know, last year. And then of course right. I'm going back to the very beginning again, you know, for, for this, but I mean, it's one of those things that just, it, it really, it really holds up and rewards, you know, almost any amount of, of rewatching like you, you always, uh, you know, Absolutely. it's it helps that it's not super plot based, but it's it's also like there are always layers. There's always new stuff that you notice. And such amazing humor and such uh, like there's there's so much there. Even just like edits that I've appreciated. Uh, you know, only like the third, fourth, fifth time I've watched something. I wanted to ask you though, because yeah. I want I want the cool kids to like me, and I want to seem like I know <laughs> cool stuff about The Sopranos. So I noticed in the episode. Um, you guys didn't touch on something that I've always seen or that, that yeah. I've started to see in the first in the first episode. It's actually even the first shot. Do you remember the first shot of the first episode? He's in the therapist's oh, yeah, office. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, isn't the first shot of the first episode where they're sitting in the psychiatrist's office and he's looking at the naked statue? So, yeah, he's looking at the naked statue, but where is he in the frame? So you're actually you're looking at Tony. He's 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 between the legs of the statue looking up at it. <laughs> In the frame. So I, I think I think it's basically about, you know, first of all, it's the start of the story. So like a birth motif is appropriate. Sure. But then, then the next shot is, of course, you see the front of the statue and she's kind of she's not, you know, it's a, it's a female nude, but not in any kind of sensual way. It's like she's got kind of her elbows up. 
and she's exposing herself in this almost like hostile with this like hostile air I feel like and it's like yeah. because it, and it's a it's establishing the themes of Tony's horrible mother and also, also probably you know David Chase's horrible mother as well I feel like right, it, right, to right. a strong extent I've always felt like that was a really um, subtle visual metaphor and I definitely didn't pick it up the first few times but I've, I've watched the show I think at least four times now uh, so yeah, I yeah. definitely whole, whole whole give my full throated support behind your endeavor. Oh, fair enough. Um, yeah, well, I, as as uh, as as tempted as I, uh, as tempted as I am to say more about that, uh, I know you did also want to talk about uh, political things before we uh, before we got off. Uh yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, well, one other thing though, because you're a Sopranos fan, have you ever seen the the footage of Tony Sirico um, from the documentary that was made? It was like made in like late like in '89 or something like that, and he's just he's just talking about his own life. I got to link you to it because it'll blow your mind. I'll, I'll no. edit no. I'll edit some audio in because it's like even back then you can just you just he's he's Paulie Walnuts. Like he's a, that guy was like a real life gangster for sure. Um, that interview was amazing. I'll link that to you, and I'm going to edit it in here too. Um, yeah, I guess we can talk about politics. I mean, you know, I want to talk <laughs> about car- cartoons for a little while too. Now I'm just with you. Uh, um, so yeah, yeah. All okay. right. So we're so we're about to do a half an hour on Rick and Morty, right? Yeah, exactly. No, oh, yeah, totally. We need at least a half hour. Um, so you are a professor of uh, philosophy. Uh, you study logic. You study, I think, rhetoric debate argumentation is that fair to say i mean i think i think anyone looking at your your photo would would i wouldn't uh you know blame them for mistaking you for some kind of pre-socratic philosopher <laughs> you know circa uh, whatever year we're looking at 500 bc um but like for 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 the general audience i want to ask like aside from you know arguing with your uncle at thanksgiving dinner Ugh. um What's the, what's like the benefit of like a study of these of these areas? Uh, in, in the, so the, can, like what what benefits can someone can, can those bring to someone's life? You think? Yeah. So uh, you know, I, um, all right. I mean, I won't. Uh, I think I won't bore anybody with like uh, being finicky about the uh, the the academic uh, you know part of the question and and what I have or haven't studied particularly. But um, but when uh, but but as far as as far as getting better at making arguments, uh, which, which is the core of it, I think that there are uh, well, I think there are at least two benefits, um, or really three. So uh, two of those are about uh, about other people uh, that you might want to persuade, uh, and one of them is about. Um, uh, is about yourself or, or your your side of the argument. So uh, the uh, the two of them that are about you know persuading other people are uh, first um, first people do uh, people do actually you know luckily a lot of people I think have this kind of exaggerated skepticism about this, but people do actually change their minds uh, and and arguments do play a role in that. Like I, I actually think. Uh, that I know what people are getting at when they say that that's not true, but I think the I think the more you think about it, the harder it is to take seriously the idea that that's not at all true, uh, because obviously uh, people do change their mind, right? I mean, like the 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 lame joke about this that I always make that I think does have some truth to it is that I'm always like amazed by by who are the people who tell me that nobody ever changes their mind because of arguments. 
Because it's all, you know, especially when it's people I know well, because it's always like, dude, I know you, right? You, I, I, like you were raised in a conservative, you know, uh, Republican, evangelical, you know, household. Uh, and then you became an atheist when you were 17 because you were watching Richard Dawkins videos on YouTube. And then you were like just a regular MSNBC liberal until the 2016 election. Then you supported Bernie and you joined the DSA. And now you're like halfway to Maoism and you're going to tell me that nobody ever changes their mind. <laughs> but, um, you know, like since people clearly do change their mind, the, the question is why? And uh, and what role do arguments play in that? And it's certainly true enough that arguments aren't the only thing that leads people to to change their mind about politics. Uh, that uh, certainly people, um, you know, certainly changes in their material circumstances uh, make people think differently. Uh, you know, certainly just kind of rhetorical positioning of you know of of just how how things are you know, striking them at a given time, you know, do it. And I, I'm totally open to saying that like maybe most of the time, even these other factors do most of the heavy lifting, but the idea is, and like some people I think who, who agree with me politically think that to be like a really sufficiently hardcore materialist, uh, you're supposed to think that, uh, that like actually argued about ideas never actually does any lifting in this process. But then I think, well, if that's if that's entailed by hardcore materialism, then hardcore materialism is just silly because clearly that's not the case. Yeah, like, um, I mean, go out, go out and talk right. to some people. But yeah, you were saying. Well, I mean, um, it's interesting because, uh, like, I was thinking about when we were talking about science fiction before. I was thinking about that great episode in season two of the Next Generation, Star Trek: The Next Generation, where they try and prove that data is conscious, and it's like try and prove to someone that that you've changed their mind you know, or that their mind has changed, you know, it's like, it's like the type of process that no one really wants to admit to. And I think like, even, even just myself in my own life, I think, I think most of my, most of what's, of what has constituted my mind, quote unquote, changing is ultimately doing reading and just adopting uh, reasonable sounding ideas that I'm, that I'm reading that, that you just kind of absorb organically and you don't really, no one wants to admit to themselves that their mind is being changed by some sort of external force. That's kind of almost like got a dehumanizing element yeah, right. to it somehow where you're just being, you're just a ping pong ball being bounced around. But like, we're all, of course the universe is change <laughs> and life, yeah, but yeah. an opinion as Marcus Aurelius said. But um, <laughs> I think what people are really saying, what people are really saying when they say people don't change their minds is that they have like very little faith in kind of the current political and social milieu vis-a-vis you know, good faith arguments and, and reasonable kind of just like discussions because, yeah, you know, people, there's, there's a hostility, there's kind of a, obviously people are really bifurcated politically to a, an extent that we've probably never seen um, before. I think, yeah. I think also there's been so many cultural kind of like, what's the term? It's like, like there's a, there's, there's, I don't, I don't want to say monoculture. It's more like there's like a wasteland. Like when you look at something like, you know, uh, mainstream network TV or mainstream politics, it, you know, there's not a lot going on there. It hasn't really been interesting. And like culturally, I think people feel, I think people think people are reading the signs that we're in some somewhat of a decline. Yeah. And I think, I think the faith obviously in the political system is tied into that as well. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying people are losing faith in, 
in society because TV is getting shittier. But <laughs> um, there's 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 definitely when people say people don't change their minds, they they just they they're they're speaking to their experience that people seem more intractable than before, and there's less of a culture of people having open dialogue before it and, and no, openly a, admitting to you know. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think especially because of things like social media. Uh, like this really comes out when you hear people talk about Trump supporters, because uh, like a small epiphany that I had about this is that like when people talk about Trump supporters and you can't reach Trump supporters, you can't convince them and things like that. They don't actually mean, although they might be confused about this, they might think this is what they mean, but they don't actually mean all 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump. Right. What they mean is like maybe 10 percent of that group that's like the real hardcore Trump supporters you know, the people who really would still vote for him if he shot a man on Fifth Avenue. Um, and right. and the thing is, part of the effect of social media and part of the effect of the kind of media segmentation we're getting, you know, what Matt Taibbi talks about in Hate Inc., uh, is that uh, it's very easy to get those two categories mixed up because because uh, the people that you're most likely to see or people that you're most likely to hear from, if you're not just sort of you know, interacting with random people, you know, you know, in in context that might come up in real life, you know, where, uh, you know, in the pre uh, Twitter age, you know, when people would just, you know, randomly talk to politics about with whoever, right, you know, with with some guy at the bar. And when you do that, what you mostly encounter is just incoherence, right? You mostly just encounter people who have like a weird mishmash of different ideas because they're not obsessives. And so they haven't like spent all this time, you know, they have political impulses, they have reactions to things they see in the news. And this is not yeah. a knock on them. I mean, like, I don't, you know, I don't think. No, I mean, we all, we all parrot stuff that we've heard, at least that we've seen elsewhere yeah, to some yeah. extent for another, like there, there's these, what we're seeing here is, is a difference in degree, not necessarily in kind with the rest of us. Exactly. And so I think that if you, you know, you, you are somewhat aware of what's going on, you know, politically and, and you have reactions, you know, to the news, you have political impulses, but this is also not one of your main interests in life, which it is not for most people, uh, then, um, then it's natural that those impulses and reactions never really cohere into a well-defined, consistent worldview. Uh, so, so mostly what you get, I think, when you're just like talking to somebody at the bar or whatever, uh, is people who are kind of all over the place, you know, which is, you know, maybe sad in one way, but it's like promising in another because that means there are elements of it you can work with. I always tell people, uh, I mentioned Joe Rogan at the top of the uh, podcast that like uh, if if you want to listen to a media figure who and I'm not saying he's not idiosyncratic or he doesn't like represent, you know, like a particular niche of a, of a particular kind of recognizable kind of dude. Of course he does, but like, you know, you should listen to Joe Rogan cause that's the closest you're going to get in media to somebody who is actually an everyman, you know, who's like, uh, who, who, cause he's just so fucking all over the place. Uh, yeah. The, the, the meatheads joined together with the potheads joined together with the UFOologists. I mean, I, yeah. and, and I still, I still think he needs, to, he needs to have more to genuine American center. Yeah, I mean, you have a point there. I mean, I, I'm getting a little annoyed with Joe Rogan. Like, I used to watch him a little bit more because I, yeah, I was more interested in the guests he was having on. Uh, like, I, I, I really love to see when he has, you know, Kyle Kalinske on and stuff like that. That's always great. Um, 
but like sometimes when it's like the same comedian that you've seen like five million times before and you're just like joe just like anybody but this yeah. guy please well, well i mean but, but look this this is what i'm talking about like his election night was kyle kalinsky and alex jones it doesn't get much more all over the place than that uh you know but 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 yeah look i mean i've i go through phases sometimes like you know sometimes like he'll have takes that annoy me so much that like, and as you say, the guests aren't that interesting. So I'll stop listing for months and, you know, sometimes I'll start again, whatever. Like, I don't actually view, you know, um, I don't actually view like whether you like, a, you know, enjoy a particularly podcast as a particularly politically, you know, weighted thing. Uh, but, um, but the point is that there are that like for better or for worse, right? Like Joe's got some super reactionary views. He's got some super progressive views and for better or for worse, I think most people, I think, I don't, I don't even want to say most people, I think that there are a lot more Joe Rogans out there than there are Sean Hannity's in the general population. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully and, Rahm Emanuel's too. Hopefully. Yeah, or Rahm Emanuel. Hopefully, oh, hopefully one day the, the Joe Rogans can beat up the, the Rahm Emanuel's. The Rahm Emanuel's, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I mean, Rahm Emanuel's probably fewest of all because like that that kind of like bloodless, like corporate centrist and has so little... Actually, the, no, there is only one Lord, Lord of Darkness. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 so it is. Sorry. Yeah. Silent Satan. He's so like I, every time I see him, they're asking him for his commentary. I'm just like, this guy is like the ghoulest of the ghoul. I, I, I can't. It's just shocking to me. It's just people just don't know. They just don't know who he is. No. It's the only no. only way he can have a career as a TV commentator. Yeah, for sure, right? So like the point is that people sometimes because what they see is Sean Hannity or what they see is like super intense people. They fight with on social media. You know, they, they've got this idea that the world that like the, the population at large is divided into, um, you know, into uh, Sean Hannity's and, and Rachel Maddow's and, and then us, you know, if we're talking about the left. Right. And of course, uh, the the bad news is that there are a lot fewer of us than that indicates. The good news is there are also a lot fewer of those other categories. Uh, and and in any case, right, the point is just that, yeah, there is this segmentation where I think the the hardcores are much more visible uh, and 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 it's much easier, I think, to get entrenched in those hardcores and, and to never, ever uh, leave them because you're just not even exposed to contrary points of view in your media bubble. Uh, well, I mean, and, and, and even the statement, you know, the, the ethos of, of, you know, people don't change their mind is is a function of an, ex, an expression of that same. Like, that's oh, that's oh. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Matt Taibbi's book, Hate Inc., which is one of the best, most apt titles for anything Absolutely, ever, yeah. because, you know, even, you know, and as as a as a failed hockey podcaster, <laughs> I can tell you this, you know, negativity is indeed what what is algorithmically rewarded. Um, and, you know, this is like people have just people are people are just are acting this out now to the point where they they you know giving up on ever changing anyone's mind ever like that's that's a form of desperation uh no like, no exactly one, right you know? like and, so yeah and and because people clearly do change their minds uh material conditions absolutely play a role in that maybe even sometimes the biggest role but they clearly don't do it by themselves observe the uh, millions of people uh, who uh, who who reacted, for example, you know, who voted for Donald Trump in West Virginia as partially as a reaction to the desperation caused by uh, the uh, closing of coal mines. Uh, they, um, you know, they could have drawn left wing conclusions, but they didn't. Right. You know, uh, and and that's so it's it's you know, it's it's not just a function uh, of uh, of material conditions. 
Uh, and so, and sometimes people are in fact persuaded by arguments. Now the germ of truth in the people don't change their minds is that it's very rare that anybody changed their mind in the room, that nobody, like it's, it's extremely uncommon. Uh, like this is why it always annoys me. There's like a certain kind of like uh, mm. schmancy debate, like they, you know, the, the Oxford style debate where uh, they'll, you know, they'll do like polls of the audience at the beginning and the end. And I was like, what the hell is that supposed to prove? Right. right. Like, you know, people, uh, cause, cause right. usually, certainly Cause to, yeah. Yeah. thinking, thinking takes, takes place at different rates and at different paces. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, certainly in my experience, right, when I look back at my own experience of changing my mind about things, it's never that the first time I hear somebody arguing for a point for a conclusion I don't like, uh, or almost never that I'm like, oh, good point. I guess that's true. Right. Like, you know, usually, uh, usually I think like most people, my first reaction to hearing, uh, you know, persuasive arguments for conclusions I don't like is just irritation. But then, uh, then you, the way it works uh, when when they do play a role in persuading you, is you know not so much. Look, certainly if you're arguing about something and somebody's making an argument to you, there's way too much of your ego bound up in it for you to actually change your mind in that moment. Uh, and even if you just strongly identify with one of the people arguing, uh, you're not one of the people on stage yourself. It's very unlikely that you would just instantly change your mind right then what's much more likely to happen certainly what i've experienced more is that you know like days later weeks later months later when less of your ego is bound up and you find yourself thinking back to it and you realize that you think about the subject differently now than you did then and that some of the very same considerations that you dismissed when you first heard them are now a big part of why you think you know whatever you think so, so that's the, so that's one, one part. People really do change their mind because of arguments. Yeah. Second part is that, okay, oftentimes people are responding more, you know, like you were talking about, you read books and, you know, you sort of absorb things that feel plausible. Like oftentimes people are responding at least as much, you know, we're a narrative species. We respond at least as much to the rhetorical packaging as we do to the quality of the arguments themselves. Totally true. But part of that rhetorical issue is in fact, whether you are providing arguments uh, that if you um, if you never get into the nitty gritty about it, right? If you never actually say here is exactly what's wrong with my opponent's argument, then I think to most people that reads as weakness. That reads as as you just don't have a good response, which is one of the reasons why some of the platforming taboos on the left drive me crazy. Because if you just like refuse on principle to engage with somebody most potentially persuadable people will read that as, oh, you're like afraid of engaging with them. Um, and then, right. no, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the same, it's like to, to try and make an argument by analogy here, you know, it's like the, when the, when the Roman legions, uh, descended upon the Gallic, uh, uh, villages, <laughs> you know, at first the Gauls are just like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. these jerks this is totally unacceptable we can't stand for this you know and then when they laid siege and surrounded them and cut off their supply lines after a few days they thought to themselves hey these guys might have a point maybe we're wrong here you know it's just like you just need a little time you need a little time to get used to the idea of being wrong yeah no totally and then uh and then the last part isn't even about other people right it's not about persuasion right the first two the first two virtues of of trying harder to to get the arguments right are about persuasion uh, and, and, you know, making arguments at all. But then like the last part is just about yourself, uh, which is that uh, part of the virtue of uh, arguing, especially arguing with actual representatives of other points of view. So like it's it's so you're not just sort of 
you know, it's not like a, uh, you know, it's, it's not like an episode of the West Wing where President Bartlett says something really eloquent and the Republicans just like hang their heads in shame because like, what can you say to that? Uh, like, but, but, <laughs> you know, when you argue with real people, uh, they never do that, right? Like they always, you know, they always have something that they can say in response to what you're saying. And uh, of course, that's much more annoying. It's much, it's much more emotionally satisfying, you know, if it did play out like the West Wing fantasy. But um, but the, the virtue of that is that once you find out what somebody who disagreed with you would say, that forces you to think harder about what you think. Uh, and, uh, and it forces you to... Um, you know, like like it forces you to think harder about why you think what you think, and you can gain a lot of clarity on that from engaging with people who don't think it. Uh, and and I think that has real advantages, just just to getting you to believe in like a stronger, more rigorously worked out uh, version uh, of whatever you think. And there's a like uh, and there's like a related thing called three and a half, you know, which is uh, that uh, which is that oftentimes it's easy to have this conversation and talk about this as if the only real question were arguing with uh, the right, right? Which, uh, which of course is, uh, you know, is, is certainly, you know, how I like to spend most of my arguing time, you know, because, because I want to persuade the people who are most wrong, uh, you know, or whoever can be persuaded who might otherwise be tempted into the dark side of the people who are most wrong. But also I think when we talk about this, we have to talk about, uh, about disagreements coming up within the left, as they have pretty reliably once every 15 minutes or so since the French Revolution. Uh, and it's uh, if if we get locked into this mindset where you think, oh, nobody can ever be persuaded, it's just a waste of time, that like all your only reactions to people who are wrong should just be like mock them or morally condemn them, you know, that you shouldn't waste any time arguing with them, then when these disagreements arise on the left, about tactics, about strategy, about, you know, how to think about, you know, uh, like is, um, you know, how to think about like the relationship between, you know, universalist economic politics and racism and, you know, all of these things that like leftists, you know, uh, eat each other alive over, uh, you know, whether, you know, whether to suck it up and vote less or evil in elections or, you know, third do third party efforts, any of these things. Well, if we get used to just like having mockery and moral condemnation be our only tools for engaging with people we disagree with, then that's what we're that's what we're going to turn on each other. You know, when we have these internal disagreements, we're going to jump to the idea that you know people have hideous motivations and, and aren't even worth engaging with. Uh, and I, th I think that can be like really toxic for trying to build a successful political movement. Yeah, I totally agree that it'll it'll be the path of least resistance and. Very, very ineffective. Um, if, uh, if I, I know we said we would only do a 45 minutes, so I think uh, we didn't get to do it the first episode, so we'll do the wind-up procedure this episode. Okay. Um, I wanted to, if we promise, and if our audience promises not to mock or morally condemn you, would you consider coming back and talking more politics and, and, and <laughs> movies and stuff sometime? Yeah, no, we don't. We don't want to book. We don't can't book art, Mr. Burgess. That was uh, well, that was definitely well, one on my to-do list today. I had to. I have to buy milk. I have to buy some shoelaces too, and then I have to make sure I don't bogart Mr. Burgess. Was number three on my to-do list today. Well, they 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 can you know they can mock me a little. I can take it, but uh, uh, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd be happy to. Hell, we could uh, you know you uh, you know you alluded to the uh, the wasteland a couple times. You know if you know if you wanted, I could come back and we could talk about T.S. Eliot. <laughs> 
Uh, hmm, I'm not depressed enough. Can we can we can we come back to when to when what seasonal right. seasonal affect is fully set in and we can really we can really like brow, like beat our chests and yeah yeah we could uh you know we can we can do that uh but uh, but yeah yeah absolutely always always happy to uh, to come back and talk about all those things that's awesome um what uh i i wanted to quickly ask actually one one thing i wanted to, to ask before you went um i really yeah. enjoyed the uh the buckley uh james baldwin debate that you guys were doing a commentary on your channel um and I, as someone who's somewhat interested in um political rhetoric and debate is there is what would you recommend as kind of the greatest hits of of uh of that art form available yeah yeah so uh so the the buckley baldwin thing you referred to this is something that uh i've started doing um it's going to be a regular weekly thing um on sundays um Whenever I do live streams, it's always five Eastern, unless it's unless it's like in reaction to some news event that just happened five minutes ago or something. Uh, so, and uh, on Sundays, I've been with various guests uh, watching and um, you know watching on the stream and breaking down like uh, old debates. And so the first one was uh, Buckley Baldwin on uh, on civil rights which which is you know which is amazing you know uh and uh and yeah we can really get into that but um uh but uh but yeah and so some of the you know i mean i think some of the others uh that that you know we're planning to do you know in the uh, in the future uh that fall uh that fall under you know maybe the same um you know that are like kind of classics uh are uh, so, um, Chomsky Foucault, uh, which, uh, which by the way, um, you know, which, yeah, Matt McManus who did Buckley Baldwin with me is going to come back for that fun fact about Chomsky Foucault, by the way, uh, Chomsky didn't know this, I think, but, uh, Foucault asked the organizers to pay him in hash. And, uh, so like for like however long it took afterwards to smoke it, you know, he and his friends talk about, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, bust out the Chomsky hash. Uh, but, uh, as certainly, wow. yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, you know, I think Zizek Peterson, I could always watch again. I'm sure I'll do that at some point, probably not for a while because I just had, uh, Russ Sabrigli on to, uh, you know, and we, we ended up talking about it for a while, but, you know, but I'm sure at some point we'll do that. Uh, I think next week we're probably like this coming Sunday, I think we're probably, I'm probably going to watch, um, uh, Hitchens versus Hitchens, uh, which, uh, so that's, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, arguing about the Iraq war with his brother, Peter Hitchens, uh, you know, it, well, they also did one on religion and it was kind of a two in one event, but I think we're going to watch, I'm going to watch the Iraq part with Gene Bajalan. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of a funny one because, um, you know, Christopher Hitchens was a, um, you know, was a lifelong leftist who took a really bad turn on foreign policy in the last years of his life, you know, obviously supported the Iraq war. Uh, but um, his brother, Peter, uh, and and also, of course, he was a very adamant secularist. And his brother, Peter, was this, uh, is, you know, he's still alive, this very uh, devout Anglican uh, right-wing Tory. Uh, in fact, he wrote a book called The Broken Compass about which Christopher said in his memoir, H-22, that it contained assertions so reactionary that he felt the need to read a uh, garlic necklace just to read it. 
but uh, but 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 Peter Hitchens somehow found himself on the right side of the Iraq war debate, you know, for whatever sort of you know right wing isolationist reasons. Uh, so uh, so that's one. Um, you know, and I realize at this point I'm just kind of rattling off debates that you know we're gonna we're gonna hit on the uh, on the stream at some point. That's okay. So, that's okay. It doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think certainly I think anything that um, like I think just about any debate uh, with with Hitchens in it I think is is a particularly good one uh, just rhetorically like he I think on the substance the arguments you know he does a lot better in some than others depending on the subject and who he's engaging with but I think. Uh, but I think just in terms of his flair for, like you said, debate as an art form, I think that uh, I think that I think that all the Hitchens ones uh, are uh, are worth um, are worth watching uh, for that. Uh, oh, actually, speaking of Hitchens, there's a kind of deep cut one we're definitely going to do at some point, uh, which is uh, which is going to be uh, the uh, uh, one that Hitchens did in like the late 80s or early 90s, I think he was definitely still a socialist, uh, where he's uh, debating some guys from like the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, but uh, but I think that I think that in general, like, yeah, I, I think maybe when I when I, when I come back, I'm gonna try to have a better answer to this question, see if I can like whittle it down to a top five list or something. But uh, but I think that uh, you know, like like I like I debates. Like debates are interesting in because they're not like, like what, you know, like like I think it's really important. Like obviously, I think debates are worthwhile. You know, I mean, I debate people. You know, I do debates with people all the time. We've been doing this series. You know, started the series of uh, doing these like Sunday night. You know, vintage debate breakdowns. Uh, but I also think it's a. I, I also think that like people are a little too quick sometimes to equate debate with 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 arguments or, or or reasoning right like like sometimes like people like associate mostly that they think of like logical fallacies as like rules of you know civilized debate or something like it's the you know what was it you know queensbury rules you know for boxing you know for debate and and i think that uh i think that's importantly wrong uh one because you know it, it kind of like logic is the study of how arguments work when they're good arguments when they aren't and I think that that's uh, that's a, an important overlapping, but importantly different from thinking about like how to debate well or something like that. Like it's important in a much broader way, but also because debates are uh, in that sense, like, you know, having a debate uh, because they're a kind of um, of like one off, like rhetorical spectacle, uh, then it's, you know, like it, it's a very specific, you know, how good your arguments are is certainly an important part of it, but it's it's not the whole thing by by any means, right? And um, oh yeah, there's a rhetorical element for sure. Um, yeah, there's that there's that great scene in The Wire where uh, Clay Davis kind of gets off by by speechifying in the courtroom, and and the the lawyers are just kind of shaking their heads as they walk out the courthouse, and one of them's just like, "What was that?" And she's just like, "I don't know," but they don't teach it in law school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough, right? So. Um, and none of which is, you know, none of which is to like disparage, you know, doing debates. I mean, I think it's like a useful, I think it's a useful exercise. It's fun. It's something that if nothing else, going back to Taibbi and Hate Inc., um, you know, which, um, which, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk more about that book sometime, um, you know, because I, I think there's like a really important, like, um, I think that 
I think that he's he's latching on to something really important that's not part of the media critique that a lot of leftists have, but it should be. Uh, oh, because and, and probably because it's incredibly sad to think about. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, very important. Very important thing for sure. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Uh, but uh, is. Uh, but because we, we live in, you know, like we've, we've had this like crazy media segmentation, which is good in some ways. Like that means that, you know, that points of view, uh, that, that wouldn't otherwise uh, get out there, get out there that, you know, that, that your podcast or my podcast, you know, it's not like these, these ever would have been shows on CBS, you know, and, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the 19, you know, 1970s. So, um, so, so, so that's, <laughs> that's good. True. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so that's like good, but like the really bad thing about it is that it, it makes it like really hard to reach people because uh, because everybody is in their own little media bubble. You can you know you can design your you know you can design your media diet like a la carte you know to for your particular preferences. So uh, if you're you know if if you're like a shitty mediocre liberal you know you can just watch MSNBC and. Uh, if you're a um, and you know and and if you're a socialist, I mean now there's like that weekend's show on Jacobin that's like, you know, or or there's like rising, you know, with you know, I mean obviously there's a conservative co-host which is actually unusual, but um, but you know we're we're crystal ball, you know, it's a leftist, but it's like got the production values and and, and kind of appearance of something you'd see on normal television. Yeah. Uh, sure. And and if you're you're a conservative, uh, you, uh, you've got Fox or, or I guess now the really hardcore people since, you know, Fox isn't doing a good enough job pretending that Trump won the election or, or abandoning Fox. Even now they're watching like Newsmax or OAN or NN or whatever. Uh, so all of which is just to say, uh, that one that like one of the real virtues of debates is that it's one of the few chances that you get to reach people who would otherwise be off in their own bubble because like, Jordan Peterson fans uh, are not going to head over to my channel or the Jacobin YouTube channel or, you know, zero books or whatever, you know, to, to watch our criticisms of Jordan Peterson. Uh, but, uh, but they will watch it if the man himself is going to be part of the event. Uh, and, and so you, you get a chance to, to do cross bubble engagement, which is a rare and valuable thing these days. So, so I'm, I'm not saying any of this to diss debates, but I think it's also important to recognize that uh, they are as much as anything this like weird form of rhetorical pro wrestling that often has very little to do, you know, with the uh, with the underlying arguments. So, um, but I will, uh, you know, but I'll I'll, I'll work on my uh, I'll, I'll work on my top five list. You know, maybe we can revisit this when I come back. Okay, sounds good. I'll uh, I'll think of some homework for myself as well. Um, maybe I'll uh, I'll. Be sure I'm I'm fully uh, showered and sober next time we're on mic. This would be, uh, you know, I, I think it's I think smart, actionable, measurable goals are good. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe shave, maybe a nice shave, splash some water on my face. Um, yeah, no, I think, think those are all those are all achievable. baby steps. Yeah, that's right. It's like the Simpsons, you know, Homer. I only asked you to do one thing for this party. That was put your pants on. <laughs> So nice to meet you, though, dude. Uh, thank you so much for talking. Um, yeah, my I'll, pleasure. I'll, uh, I'll be looking forward to uh, your work on uh, Give Them an Argument, and uh, and I hope uh, we get a chance to talk more soon. Absolutely. Sounds good, man. The goblins were awakened when it began to thunder in the distance. Great, a wild storm, they said. Knowing that the most wonderful rainbows spring from the biggest thunderstorms, they began to dance. 